We are in a series called Exodus. It's a study not only of the Hebrew Exodus and Israel getting out of slavery in Egypt, but it is also a story that becomes a framework or a reference for the New Testament to refer to when talking about the greater Exodus led by the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Yeshua of Nazareth. This is why we've had the tagline, how God draws us out to draw us in. We're not just studying the Exodus just so we know historical facts of the Exodus. We're using the Exodus to understand better what Jesus has done for all of humanity. Bringing us out of slavery into the promised land that is the kingdom of God. We left our story last week by looking at Pharaoh's decision to make life harder on Israel after they said, please let us go and worship our God. Pharaoh said, okay, well, I don't know who you think you are, but I know who I am. I'm going to make things harder on you. And our text this morning is unique. And here's why it is unique. Because it is a repeat or a a reprise of Exodus chapter 3 in a lot of ways. God is going to say some of the very things that he has already said to Moses. Now, having two stories that are very similar should tell us that this story is important. I mean, if we're repeating some of the very same things that God already said, it's as if God is saying, hey, let me say this again for you. Let me remind you of what I have already said. The compilers of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, often would include stories that were similar for this very reason, to drive home the point But they would also include it because something in the second story is new information. So they would repeat the story, say some of the very same things, but then there was going to be something within this story that's different. And that's true for us this morning. When we look at this text in just a minute, we're going to see that some very similar things that God is going to drive home, but then we're going to see something very different that is going to have an impact not only on Israel, but for the entire human history. So if you would, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and then we're going to break those down and look at them. Stand with me, if you will. Exodus chapter 6, we're going to read the first 13 verses. You'll see the similarities pretty quickly. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am 
the Lord, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from the slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and you will be and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I, am an uncirc- for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You may be seated. At the end of chapter 5, Moses is confused and he asks God some big questions. Lord, Why have you done evil to this people, Israel? Why did you even send me here? For since I came here to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Things have just gotten worse. And you have not delivered your people at all. Those are some big questions. I mean, those are some big complaining questions to God. God, why have you even sent me here? Since coming here and speaking of your name, things have just gotten worse. Pharaoh has just come down harder. Pharaoh has just been rougher and and mightier and more powerful than he was before. Moses is just like us when things get hard. We focus on the hard thing instead of focusing on Jesus. Instead of focusing on the Lord, our eyes get focused on the hard thing. Moses was focused on the wrong thing here. He was too easily impressed with the power and the might of Pharaoh and not near enough impressed with Yahweh. But the Lord in his grace is going to reiterate what he has already told Moses, reminding him once again who he is. And the Lord says in verse 1, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Oh, you want to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh? You're going to get to see it. Throughout the rest of the Exodus story, we're going to see this phrase, I will do, over and over and over again. God saying, I will do. God is going to do what he wants. And what he wants, he will do. Listen, that is a theological truth that applies for all times, for all peoples, everywhere. God is going to do what he wants, and what he wants, he will do. And no one can hold him back from accomplishing his will and purposes. Brother James said that a few weeks ago. And look at what he says he's going to do. He says, with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out 
of his land in verse 1. I love a couple things about this phrase that God uses here. First of all, you see this term strong arm. I believe this applies to God, not to Pharaoh. This is God's strong arm. God is going to flex his might, so to speak. And when he does, Pharaoh is going to let God's people go. All God has to do is stretch out his mighty arm and Pharaoh has to do what God wants. Pharaoh, can, he, he could try to fight it. He could try to de- deny it. He could try to wrestle with it. It doesn't matter. When God stretches out his sovereign will on Pharaoh, Pharaoh is going to do God's will. And let that just be a good reminder to us. We can look around the world and see chaos. Make no mistake about it. This world is in control of God's mighty arm. Nothing is happening in this world that takes God by surprise or does not fall with the, under the ordained decree of God. As if we're, we're looking at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and, and how we should get involved and how we shouldn't get involved and, and, and all of these issues that are happening in our country and around the world and we throw up our hands and say, Yahweh God, where are you? I'm accomplishing my purposes. That's where I am. And we can come in here and we can use language about God being in charge and God being in control, but we got to understand when the rubber meets the road, we got to believe that. God doesn't try to do anything. Let me, let, me, let me say that again in case you didn't hear it. God doesn't try to do anything. He does things. No matter how powerful the opposition may be, when God does something, he does it. The other thing I love about this statement is that when the Lord moves with his mighty strong arm, it's not just that Pharaoh will let the people go like, okay, I I guess I'll just, I guess I'll do it. It says he's going to send them out and drive them out. God's will is not just going to barely get accomplished. It's going to be completely accomplished. Pharaoh will so bend to my will, he's going to drive you out of his land. Please, yes, get out. The reason for this, the reason why God's will won't be done covertly, the reason why it will be done overtly and unmistakably is because in verse 2, God makes it very clear, I'm Yahweh. Why can you be sure, Moses, that Pharaoh is going to send the people out and drive the people out? Because I'm Yahweh. I'm in charge. This is my story. It's like a parent saying to a child about what's going to happen. Why? Because I'm your father, that's why. I can give you a lot of other reasons, but the reason why we're going to do what what I just said we're going to do is because I'm your father and I'm in charge. I'm your mother. I'm in charge. A boss, you know, employer saying to employees, why are we going to do it this way? Because I'm the boss. That's why this company is going to do it this way. I'm in charge. 
God is saying that all all of this with Pharaoh and Israel will come to pass because I am Yahweh. I'm the great I am. I am the powerful one, not Pharaoh. I'm in charge, not Pharaoh. This is my story, not Pharaoh's. I am sovereign, not Pharaoh. The most powerful man on the planet was Pharaoh. And God says, when I stretch out my arm, Pharaoh does my will. So I know you got big questions, Moses. I understand your big questions, but you're going to see that I'm a big God. You're going to watch it happen. And there's going to be no mistake when this is done, who is in charge and who is sovereign. So not only is God sovereign, but God is faithful. Verses three through five lays this out. God states in verse three, I have appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. As God Almighty, El Shaddai. I've appeared to them as El Shaddai, but I did not reveal myself to them as Yahweh. I revealed myself to them as God Almighty, and I revealed a lot about myself to them, but I did not reveal myself as Yahweh. I'm now revealing myself in a new way, with a new name. Now, why why bring this up? Why does God tell Moses this? Like, what's the point, right? I always ask questions like this when I'm reading the Bible. You know, God will say something. I'm like, now, why did he say that? What's the reason why he said that? In context, why right here does he say that? What's the point? I believe one of the reasons, at least, for God giving this new name is because this is a new stage of God's relationship with Israel. He enters into relationship He makes himself known as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But now we're stepping into a new stage in this relationship. And with this new stage comes a new name. You're going to need to know this name for this new part of this relationship that we're going into. It implies that the promises that were made to the fathers are going to be fulfilled now. This is God revealing his faithfulness. And after he makes this statement, he brings up his covenant in verse 4. In verse 4, he brings up his covenant. He said, I also established my covenant with them. I gave them a covenant. This covenant that God initially made with Abraham was started in Genesis chapter 17. He promised to give the land of Canaan that they were sojourners in. They never possessed all of that land. God says, I'm going to give Canaan as a permanent dwelling to Abraham and his descendants. Then verse 5 says, and I've now remembered my covenant. Again, church, don't think that God forgot it. It's not like God was like, "Ah, I forgot what I, what what did I say in Genesis 17? Oh, that's right. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. No, what he's saying by remembering, he's saying, and now's the time. Now's the time I'm going to fulfill this promise that I made. I made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan as their permanent dwelling. And now I've remembered it. Now I'm acting on fulfilling that promise. It has been over 600 years since the initial promise to Abraham. God is saying, I haven't forgotten. Now's the time. And church, there's a principle there that we need to understand. 
God may not do what we need him to do when we think he needs to do it. He'll do what we need him to do in the time that we actually need him to do it. See, we think now's the time he needs to do this. And God's saying, oh, no, you don't know yet. You, you, don't, you don't know when, when this needs to happen in your life. You think you know when it needs to happen in your life, but you don't. And if I do it now, it won't be the time and I won't get the glory that I need and it won't be for your good the way it needs to be. So you need to wait. 600 years has passed since Genesis chapter 17. They have waited 600 years. I mean, some of them probably have just given up. God's not going to do it. I mean, I know what he said to Abraham. But look where we're at now. God is saying to, to Moses, Moses, now is the time. I said I would do it and I am about to do it. Pun intended. I am about. You see what I did there? I actually wrote that down in my notes. God is faithful. El Amina. God is faithful. A faithful God. But how is God going to fulfill this covenant? Well, that's what's revealed in the next set of verses. Now we come to the new information. Up to this point, pretty much a reiteration of what he said in Exodus 3. But now we're going to see something new. Something that's not mentioned in chapter 3. It's actually an idea that will have a mighty impact on God's relationship with man moving forward. It is the idea of redemption. Up until this point in Scripture, we don't have this idea of redemption. First time, God is going to be talking about how he redeems. So let's talk about redemption. I mean, that's what he says in verse 6, right? I will redeem you. Israel I'm going to redeem you. So let's talk about redemption for a minute. Redemption is a family term. If you're taking notes, write that down. That's important. It is a family term. You may have heard of kinsman redeemer before. If you've been around church for any length of time, maybe you've heard the idea of a kinsman redeemer. God is going to lay out how Israel is supposed to make this work in their family relationships in Leviticus 25 and 27. If a family member falls into debt and loses their land, then a better kinsman who is well off, who's not in debt, who has the payment could take responsibility to purchase the land and give it back to the family member. So if someone in the family, so let, let's just take me and Caleb, for instance, and let's say Caleb goes into debt and he loses his land. <coughs> he's lost his land and he can't do anything, you know, to buy it back. He, he's just making enough money to make ends meet and he's lost his land and there's nothing he can do to fix it. What I could do as his older brother 
is I could step in as the kinsman redeemer. And I could purchase the land for him back and then give it to him. So here is your land back. And what this does is it guarantees that the land stays in the family. Right? That you don't have generational um, poverty just continuing on in Israel over and over and over again with some people having everything and other people having nothing. So he's in trouble. He loses his land. Now he can barely make ends meet. I will step in as the kinsman demon. I'll buy this for him and then give it back to him. The land stays in the family. But sometimes it even gets worse than that. Sometimes the situation happens where the family member not only loses their land to pay off the debt, right? The debt is something I can't pay back. Here's the land to pay back. The debt is so great, not only must I lose the land, I have to then put myself into slavery to somebody and pay, continue to pay because the debt is larger than just the land that I have. Does that make sense? So Caleb loses his land, but that's not enough to pay off the debt. Now he's got to put himself into slavery to the man he owes money to and has to work and continue to work off the debt that he still owes. Well, if I'm the kinsman redeemer, I can step in and say, not only will I pay the debt that he owes for the land, I'm actually going to buy him out of slavery and give him his land and everything back to him. I'm going to step in as the redeemer, as the kinsman redeemer for him. And this is the idea of kinsman redeemer. Most of you probably uh, have thought about the kinsman redeemer in the context of Ruth, right? It's probably where we're most familiar with it. Boaz steps in as the kinsman redeemer. Now, let me say this. This is what God is going to do for Israel. This story is the entire basis for a kinsman redeemer. Catch this. This is super exciting. The reason why we have the idea of a kinsman redeemer in the law is because this is what God did for Israel. It's not as if God said, oh, you know what? There's this idea of kinsman redeemer. Let me, let me apply that to what I'm going to do for Israel. No, it's the other way around. The reason why we have the idea of kinsman redeemer in the law is because it points to what God did for Israel. So every time a kinsman would step in and buy land back for his people or, or his family or, or buy them out of slavery, it should remind that entire family of what God did for Israel. God was the kinsman redeemer for Israel. That's why it's so important in 422, God calls Israel my firstborn son. That just pumps me up, guys. I don't know about you. That really makes me excited because I read 422 and I don't have a clue what's coming in chapter 6. But in 422, God says, this is my firstborn son, Israel. They're my family. And then we get to God saying, and I'm going to redeem my family. I'm going to step in as the kinsman redeemer for my family. I'm going to buy back my family. I'm going to get my, the land that I, that I promised them that they lost. And now they've gone into slavery. I'm going to deliver them out of slavery and I'm going to give them back their land. I am Israel's kinsman redeemer. Man, that's awesome. 
So Yahweh steps in. And then that's why God says as he's giving the law, oh, um, I want you guys to have this whole idea of kinsman redeemer too. I want you guys to be kinsman redeemers for each other. And every time you do it, it'll point to me. How I've been Israel's kinsman redeemer. I brought them out of slavery and gave them back their land. And here's what's so interesting. God has already acknowledged Israel as his firstborn son, but through the exodus, Israel will acknowledge God as their father. God acknowledges them out of grace, and he chooses them to be his firstborn son among all the people of the world. And through his work, they acknowledge him as father. This is what is meant in verse 7. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. Redeemer. What an idea. What a God. And now, just thinking about what I'm about to tell you, I've been excited about it for days. I have been so excited. Hopefully you can see where this is going. As we move into the gospel, We are not just pulling the world, we're not just pulling the word redeemed out of thin air in the New Testament. We're not just going, hey, you know what? What's a word we could use for the gospel of what Jesus has done for us? Oh, I know. Hey, redeemed. Let's let's guess where the gospel writers and the, 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 the writers of the letters in the New Testament, guess where they're getting the idea of redeemed from? They're getting it from the Exodus. I used to think they're just getting it from the kinsman redeemer laid out in Leviticus chapter 25 and 27. No, they're not. It goes back further than that. They are getting their idea of a redeemer from what God did for Israel. And they're applying that idea of redeemer to the gospel. They're using the language of the Exodus and applying it to the greater Exodus. Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, when the right time came, God sent forth his son. We may ask, well, God, why didn't you do it earlier? Why didn't you send Jesus to be the firstborn of Adam and Eve? Why why did you wait this long? He's got a plan. It's got a purpose. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, family language. Redeem family language. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. What redemption does for the Christian. Let's just lay it all out. Before the world began. Church, listen to me. Before the world began, you were chosen to be in God's family. Scripture's clear on it. God set his love upon us before the world began. Our names were written down in the Lamb's book of life before the world began. 
We were, we were a part of God's family before we were a part of God's family. Does that make sense? Because he chose that this is what we're going to be to him. We lost the land. You say, what land? The earth. We blew it. We lost it. What was God's commission to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with my glory. I want worshipers of me all over the world. The goal wasn't for human beings just to stay in the Garden of Eden forever and ever and ever. The whole point was, obey me, worship me, bask in my glory, have babies, raise them up to bask in my glory, and fill the earth with my glory. Fill the earth with worshipers of me. Fill the earth with my image bearers. But because of sin, we lost the land. And the devil becomes the prince of the power of the air. He becomes the god of this world. He's the one who causes the chaos and the, the disorder on the planet. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus comes to buy back, his, buy back God's people and to buy back the land. He buys us out of the slavery by his blood and he gives us the land, the new earth. He gives it back to us with him as our king. Do you see the parallel? We lost our land because of sin and we got enslaved with no chance to get ourselves free. Our spirit was broken. Our lives were a mess. Sin had just destroyed us. Death was just taking people. And God said, Son, now is the time for us to go redeem our people. And Jesus came. And by his blood, he bought us out of slavery of sin. And by his blood, he ransomed the people for himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue so that the world will be once again filled with his image bearers who love him and serve him and glorify him. And in Revelation chapter 21, we read these verses. Behold, when redemption is complete, when it's all said and done, and Jesus comes back, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember what he said at the beginning of the chapter? I see a new heavens and a new earth. A new earth, a new land that God bought back. That he has now cleansed and perfected and purified. And he's going to come and dwell with us on that new earth. And they will be his people, it says. And God himself 
will be with them as their God. Same language as we read in Exodus when he says, and I will be a God to Israel and Israel will be my people. Now with the gospel, it's people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. Now it's, it's people from all over the world. So the mission of God is accomplished. The, the world is going to be filled with people worshiping Jesus. No sin, no pain, no shame, no slavery. The land is ours. The meek will inherit the earth. We get the earth back. Not because we could do it. Because our Redeemer came. Our Redeemer came and he bought us out of the slavery of sin and he gave us back the earth where he could dwell with us perfectly once again and we will be his people and he will be our God. Charles Spurgeon once said, the heart of the gospel is redemption. I think we've seen this to be true this morning. The heart of the gospel is redemption and it finds its roots in Exodus chapter 6. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 111, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. 